Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode 44 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Jake Finkelstein of Method Savvy. I was introduced to Jake by another guest of the podcast, Carl Sakis, who told me that he considered Jake one of the top 1% of decision makers out there. And after this podcast, I can definitely see why. But what sets Jake apart isn't that he always makes the right decision or anything like that. It's that he's able to quickly learn when he's wrong, both in the problems he focuses on and the solutions he applies to try to solve them. Today, not only does Jake share how he does that and why it's so important, but he also shares the decision-making process that led to him to turn away a $600,000 client. If you ever second-guess yourself or feel like you're not making the progress you should be, this is the episode for you. So without further ado, here's Jake. Jake, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So when Carl Sakis introduced us, he told me that you're in the top 1% when it comes to making smart decisions. So today, I don't want to put such a pressure to you, but I'm expecting some really revolutionary and groundbreaking stuff from you. <laughs> well, I will certainly do my best, but I think Carl may be exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> well, kidding aside, though, I know you do have a unique and interesting background. So for the listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you share what that background is and how you got where you are today? Sure, sure. So it has uh, been a bit of a winding road. So I actually cut my teeth in the music business back in the 90s when people went to record stores and actually bought music on little discs. Um, so I, you know, like most uh, music industry folks, I started as a touring musician, decided I didn't want to spend my, my life in a tour van, um, ended up uh, working for a independent metal record label uh, called Megaforce Records, uh, which ultimately led me to work for Sony Music Entertainment prior to the BMG merger. Um, and had a great experience working with folks like System of the Down, Pearl Jam, Bruce Springsteen, just a whole, whole bunch of really fun folks. Um, and then got a little bit tired of the politics of corporate life and decided to jump ship uh, with the uh, former guitar player from Modern English, you know, Stop the World Melt With You. Guy Tommy Brunette and uh, joined he his company, which was a, a nationally syndicated college non-commercial radio program called Universal Buzz Radio. So it was all pre-recorded live concert performances. I went over there to uh, kind of build it into a national brand, and we were monetized off advertising. Unfortunately, September 11th occurred, and the advertising market became very difficult. And uh, I remember very vividly one day having a conversation with Tommy, and we had a couple of uh, angel investors, um, and we were talking about what to do because we didn't think the business model was going to be sustainable. And uh, I said, well, I know a lot about music marketing, and you know a lot of musicians. Let's start a music marketing company. So that's what we did. And quite frankly, we got lucky. One of the first uh, artist that we had the opportunity to work with was a little band uh, that just got signed to V2 called the White Stripes. Uh, we had recorded them uh, for the radio program, and when they got signed to V2 and put out White Blood Cells, uh, we were brought in to help market the album, and when that went platinum, we were kind of off to the races. Uh, so that uh, gave us the opportunity to work, not just with pretty much every record label under, under the sun, but also with uh, television, film, video game companies. And that ultimately brought us into working with uh, large international brands. So by the early, mid-2000s, we were really positioned as a creative and experiential um, marketing company, so focusing on lifestyle programs. So publicity stunts, concert tours, um, integrated digital uh, lifestyle programs. 
you know, a whole lot of fun. So we were uh, mostly working with brands like you know Levi's, Coca-Cola, Starbucks uh, to produce really interactive experiences. And then um, you know we uh, it was kind of the doldrums of the economy in 2007, 2008, and uh, wanted to make a little bit of a lifestyle change and decided to to leave there and, and start Method Savvy. I could ask you thousands of questions about the musicians, about the industry, about all of that, but I'll try to stay somewhat focused today. So let me ask though. When you're transitioning into not necessarily more of a generic, but you're changing markets a bit. You're not just working with musicians. You're not just doing purely experiential advertising. How did you make that transition into what Method Savvy does today? And I mean, when I look at your website, it says we turn targets to leads to customers again and again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how mm-hmm. did you eventually get to that pretty tight? I like I like the succinct positioning statement you have there. How did you get to that? Mm-hmm. So I learned everything the hard way, um, <laughs> and I would not recommend it, but it's been worked out pretty well for me over the years. So um, what actually happened is when we were focusing on music, the initial uh, bridge that we were crossing was about tying music into brand experiences, and you know, that's been very successful, not, not just for you know, my former agency, but for many different brands. Um, especially when you're reaching, you know, teens, twenties, thirty somethings. Um, what happened when the economy started to get poor, and like you said, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, is I started hearing from all of our Fortune five hundred clients kind of the same refrain: budgets were being cut in half, teams were being slashed, and uh, there was a desire to have more accountability for marketing investments. So, quite frankly, as much fun as it is to have some big international brand give you a couple million dollars to put together a coast to coast concert tour. All I was really giving back to them were pretty pictures and some good press. I couldn't really tell them what it meant for their business. Um, And when I decided to make the change from my former agency to Method Savvy, I really set out to solve that problem. How do you build accountability, transparency, and as much predictive scaling as possible into the marketing and advertising process. So what I did is I just read a lot. I talked to a significant number of people and just asked tons and tons and tons of questions. I'm, I'm a big fan of Steve Blank and his customer development process. And, and that is more or less what, what we did. You know, we went out and we just talked to as many people as we could. And as we listened, we started to hear patterns and we started to build out methodologies and approaches that we believed solved those problems. Was it just you at the beginning, or did you have kind of a small team around you when you first established Method Savvy? Sure. No, it's a great question. So I actually started Method Savvy on my own as a consultant, um, and I spent about the first year and a half, two years uh, acting as a consulting firm. And you know, of course, we had contractors and freelancers that we would bring in as needed. Um, but you know, what I was lucky enough when I left my former agency to leave with a couple of clients, so we kind of hit the ground running. And um, what I discovered pretty quickly is that the companies we were working with loved the methodology, loved the approach, uh, but they were really poor at executing on it. And it's not that they're dumb, it's just that it, it's a bit of a paradigm shift and they didn't have the right kind of training amongst their teams or the right type of technology infrastructure to do what really needed to be done. So during that process, I decided to make a shift from just being a well-paid consultant to actually impacting our clients' businesses, which is what got me to start building out agency services. And as soon as I started building out the agency services, I started bringing in team members. So one of my uh, first employees actually the first employee was a gentleman by the name of uh, Devin Kelly. And Devin and I actually did a lot of that customer development work together. Interesting. And how big is your team today? 
uh, roughly about 20, but uh, we're in growth mode, so we'll be closer to 25, 30 as we move into uh, Q1. Oh, wow. Nice. For now, I want to I kind of dive into what we were talking about over email before the show. And you mentioned something that really stood out to me, and you said that agency owners and business owners in general spend an enormous amount of time on re- and resources solving the wrong problems. Can you share with listeners what you mean by that? Sure. So that, that's actually one of the founding principles of Method Savvy. And it, it's not that I believe that uh, business owners or, or marketers in particular are dumb. It's just the opposite. However, they oftentimes come to the table with either the wrong assumptions or uninformed assumptions. So really great examples. I remember when uh, Twitter launched. I was actually at South by Southwest that year. And I used to get calls from clients for you know six months afterwards going, we got to be on Twitter. Why? I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. It used to drive me crazy. That there is just simply because somebody else is doing it is not a good strategic justification for making an investment. And we're, we see many of uh, the same kind of shiny object syndromes from clients up and down the, the size scale from, you know, a couple million dollars a year in revenue all the way to a billion dollars a year in revenue. And, you know, the goal is not to have the best Super Bowl commercial or the most creative awards. It's to make investments that drive measurable business outcomes. Now, the challenge there is, is that you have to understand what outcomes you're trying to drive. And that's actually what gets business owners in particular off track is, is that they're focusing on the wrong thing. Um, so a really good example of this is uh, we had a client a couple of years ago, um, software as a service company. They had a freemium model. So somebody could register for the product for a free trial and if I remember correctly, about a month. And after that, they had to upgrade. And uh, they came to us because they were working with another agency and they said, well, you know, they seem to be doing pretty well, but we're not getting the same type of lift that, that we used to. We think maybe you or another agency could do a better job. We said, okay, that's fine. But before we put together a digital advertising program, can we look at your customer data? Can we look at your marketing analytics data? You know, can we talk to the stakeholders and sales team within your organization? They said, sure. And what we found out is they were spending roughly 80% of their marketing budget on customers that were generating roughly 30% of their revenue premium model. So the solution was not to do a better job of advertising. It was to do less advertising and to focus more on customer retention and conversion from freemium users to paid users. And, and that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say you're solving the wrong problem. It's that if you dig a little bit deeper, you can usually find the one or two items that if you can solve those, will have a much bigger bang for your buck faster. So it's kind of like applying the 80-20 principle to what you're doing. It is look for the things that actually matter that produce disproportionate results compared to all the other almost noise that's out there. Yes, yes. The challenge is that those things are rarely exciting. So uh, another example is we have a client, um, billion-dollar-plus business um, in the office, um, furniture, kind of carpeting and flooring space. Um, and you know they are very successful, have an excellent sales team, have gotten a lot of scale, and um, their big problem is that their customer data is not clean. It, it is just very well organized. So they can't do all the high level segmentation, kind of like interesting, fancy things they want to do. The right thing for them is actually to spend a lot of time doing boring customer data work. <laughs> and, and that's a hard thing for, or those types of problems are hard things to get CEOs or CMOs excited about. And even as a business owner, it's hard to get excited about those little things. But it's usually the blocking and tackling that is worth focusing on 
first because it will, ha- it will generate the highest level of positive outcome. Then you will have plenty of time and resources to do the fun, sexy things. I'm sure you have sort of your discovery process. You have your onboarding process where you really try to figure out what their problems are, what you're working with. When when they come to you and they have just data that you really can't work with right away, how do you how do you handle that? No, that's an excellent question and a very common problem. Um, so we always like to start with what's known, right? Uh, and that can be customer data sets, um, stakeholder conversations, customer conversations. And in an ideal world, all of those are really rich and valuable, and sometimes they're not. And if they're not, then you have to set it aside and look for other types of data sources that are available. Uh, and you know, there's many along the uh, quantitative, the qualitative scale um, that can be looked at surveying uh, third-party data. Um, you know, what you're really looking for is how much can I learn that's going to inform my thinking? Because from a marketing perspective, I don't actually believe that any set of marketers can be significantly more right more often than others, but you can know when you're wrong faster. And in order to know when you're wrong faster, you have to have enough data to inform your hypotheses about what is true or, for that matter, not true. So that way when you test, you, you have a model so you can say this either is happening or not happening the way that I expect. And then, quite frankly, if it doesn't work and it's not happening the way that you want it to, then you just stop and move on to something else and stop putting good money after bad. It almost seems like you're making the the kind of the random walk argument, the the efficient market hypothesis, where it's like you can't do much better than an educated guess, but you need to test your hypotheses and you fail quick. You need to learn. But in doing that, don't you then get better so that the next decisions you make afterwards are better than the ones you're making before? So there is an additive effect, both in terms of data and in terms of outcomes. However, just because something's worked a thousand times before doesn't mean it's going to work the thousand and first. So you always have to approach, um, especially marketing decisions, but I would really argue any decisions in business with a healthy set of skepticism. So you know, if you've run an email marketing program and you have 40% open rates and every time you send an email, you make $10,000, well, that's great. And that's a perfectly good hypothesis, but that doesn't mean when you send the next one, you're not going to um, sell 80 thousand dollars worth of product or two thousand dollars worth of product to your point that additive effect does make your hypothesis stronger but it doesn't necessarily make you more right they still need to be tested you can't just assume that because of your vast experience and all everything you've learned that you're going to be right you that you can just throw away all the testing yeah i i believe that experience and good data help you understand what not to do more so than what to do in like a example for a client, like if you're working with someone on, say, a new campaign or, or anything new, like what type of experience, like what would be things where you're like, all right, I'm not going to do that anymore? Like what have, has the experience taught you not to do? And I guess you can't boil it down to a simple rule of thumbs, but do you have any examples to tie that to, to practice a little more? Sure. So uh, let me answer that in two different ways. Um, first is, is that experience that a activity or an approach does not work for one client does not mean that it will not work for their client. And we actually have seen that um, in, in real world practice that, you know, billboards are a terrible waste of money for brand A, but they actually work pretty well for brand B. And the reason is, is that it has to do with who the customer is, what's important to the customer and how they feel and experience the brand. Um, but, but set that aside for a second, the, the more um, relevant uh, example is, 
really about testing and optimization around a program. So let, let me uh, give you an example here. Uh, we have a client that we are currently onboarding where they've done a decent amount of email marketing work and have found that they have a particular segment that is not highly engaged. So the answer there at this point, given their goals is not actually to get those unengaged folks more engaged. It's to increase revenue through the people that are highly engaged because they're doing a sprint towards the end of the year where they want to hit a certain revenue number. Um, So it's just an issue of focus and stopping doing what's not generating the outcomes that you want, at least temporarily, so you can invest a little bit more in what's going to get you to the goalpost. Because that's one thing where it's like, Everybody wants to, they hate having projects that fail. They hate having segments. When you're working clients, they hate having segments of the customer base that just don't make that much money. And so they always want to try to spend all this money to save that segment instead of just saying like, hey, you have this one group that basically if you spend a dollar on ads, you're going to triple that every single time all day. Like just pour as much money in that. Like is it hard for you to actually get them on board with that, to get clients on board with that mindset that like, hey – you're not going to be able to get everybody to win, but you have this one group less focused on them. Like, is it hard to get them to agree with that? Yes, extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are two sets of customers that we run across customers that buy into the methodology and the approach and will have the patience to succeed incrementally. And those that uh, will get impatient and we probably never should have worked with anyway. Uh, and, and I understand why failure sucks. Like it's not something that people want to go through, but I firmly believe it is the only way to truly succeed. So a good example of this is uh, we had a B2B brand that was focused on generating, they were a training company. So they did um, online and in office training for a number of different kind of product verticals or, or industry verticals. They were very successful. We worked with them for a number of years. Um, and one of the uh, items that we managed for them was their paid search campaigns amongst a, a variety of other kind of like integrated marketing programs. And they got acquired by a uh, large international company and their new CEO had had a lot of success with paid search. It was like, hey, this is great. We need to hit some goals. So I want to spend a absurd amount of money on paid search. I think they wanted to spend like Five hundred or six hundred thousand dollars over two or three months in incremental budget in order to generate revenue. We said that is great. We would love to take your money, but it won't work. And here's why. And we gave them a whole bunch of data and modeling that said that we had reached all of the down funnel traffic that we thought that we could that was transactional, and that we could move into other uh, keyword segments, kind of ancillary audiences. But we didn't believe that it was going to perform at the same rate, and therefore they're not going to hit their goal. And their executives came back and said, that's great, run it anyway. We said, well, let, let us show you some more data that shows you why this is not going to work, why this is not a smart idea. We're going to be happy to explore some other areas here, or some alternatives. They came back and they said, well, you know, if you won't do this, then we're going to go find somebody else that will. We said, okay, that's fine because we do not believe it's going to work. And what happened? It didn't work. So I would have loved to have taken their money, but the truth of the matter is is that it wasn't good for them, and it certainly wouldn't be good for our reputation. When you're working with anybody in business, but particularly from an agency perspective, when you're working with brands, it is a fundamental imperative that you tell the truth and that you're willing to lose business in order to tell the truth. Right. Instead of just being 
kind of defining your clients as anyone with an open checkbook, you're actually making sure that you're not only doing the right thing in like a moralistic way, but you're doing the actual right things in, in terms of the strategies, the tactics, and everything that you're applying to this to get them the solution that they really want at the end of the day. Yes, yes. And in order to do that, one is sometimes you have to turn down money that you really would have liked. I would have loved that 600 grand. I would have bought a new car. But, you know, I, it, I just, it wasn't the right thing to do and ran against our core values. The, the other problem is, is that it wasn't going to work. And we had enough data and information and experience to know it wasn't going to work. And I do think it's a moral imperative that when you're in that position, that you speak the truth. Now, that is somewhat different from an agency perspective of helping a client do a dumb thing as good as they possibly can. I think that's actually okay. As long as you're honest that it's not ideal and you help them understand what the outcomes are. Because oftentimes the clients know their business better than the agency does. Um, so there is a fine line there, but I do believe that when something fundamentally will not work, that you do have a responsibility to, to be clear about that. Um, so to circle back to your uh, initial question, uh, there are sometimes some challenging conversations to have with clients, but if you have mutual respect, then they, they will listen to you with open ears. It seems like one of the important things you've developed is the importance of having clients buy in to that methodology from day one. And you almost use that as a bit of a screening process to see if they're even going to be a good client or not. Yes. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the challenger sales process, but we actually deploy that here. And a lot of it is about telling prospects and clients no rather than yes. And two really interesting things happen. One is that we actually get to take a strong stand for what we believe is right. Now, you can't just make it up. Like you have to be able to back it up with real data and information. And the reason why clients come to agencies is because, theoretically at least, we know something more than they do. But you have to have humility in that, too, and recognize that there are things, especially related to their business and their customers, that they do know more about. But you know, I think that you, know, you have to be able to make a case concisely, in order to screen out folks that really just want the fast fix. And I can't tell you how many times we have a conversation with a prospect where we say there are no silver bullets. And that you know if you don't have to spend money on marketing, don't. But there's very few businesses that can actually do that. So let's make sure that the money that you do spend is spent intelligently. And you've talked throughout this conversation, you've talked about your, your founding principles, your methodology. What are those principles? Like, What is that methodology? that you want to buy in from the clients? Like, what do you want them to agree with? What, what are your, your stance? Sure. Um, so, you know, we, we have a number of core values. Uh, prominent among them is uh, uh, trust and, and credibility. So we want to make sure that we are as transparent as humanly possible. Um, I believe that, you know, if we are honest in our approach and it's backed up by data, then we have nothing to fear. There have been conversations, both with prospects and clients, where we will have healthy debates about an approach or recommendation. And our response is, let's all look at the data together. Do we agree that this is a trusted source? Do we agree that this is saying things that are true? Okay, if so, let's analyze it together. And what that does is really create a kind of broader understanding. So I think that you have to have that trust, that credibility, that transparency is kind of core to it. Um, the, the next piece is, is that there is a difference between ideas and hypotheses. <laughs> Ideas you can come up with, they're creative, they're fun. Hypotheses are good ideas that are backed up by evidence. Now, that evidence does not have to be ones and zeros, kind of quantitative data. There's lots of good qualitative kind of research-oriented 
can be utilized. Um, but I say this to my team all the time is, is that you have to have justification. You know, it's about making a case for a recommendation. And if you can't make the case, then you're just spitballing. And that's not, not what we do here. Right. Because that was what I was going to ask is that you're not advocating just throwing a bunch of crap against the wall to see what sticks. You're, you want to have informed tests. You want them to truly be a hypothesis. Yes, yes. And that is extraordinarily critical and very hard to do well because oftentimes marketers are not trained to think that way. Um, you know, it goes very much into the lean methodology and being able to quickly learn uh, on an iterative basis, which is actually another kind of core principle. Um, and this actually gets us in, into some difficult conversations with clients because uh, many traditional marketers hate incremental improvement. And that sounds counterintuitive, but because it's not exciting, you know, a 2% month over month improvement in revenue is not as exciting as a 20% month over month improvement once and then flat for three months and then another 20%, right? Um, I do not like big spikes or big valleys because oftentimes that means we don't know what happens. Now, we have one client that we've worked with for three and a half, four years now where we know for every incremental dollar they give us, we can give them about $4.50 back up to a point of diminishing returns. So it becomes how much do you want to spend and how much revenue do you want to make? And, and like that's taken a lot of work to get there. But if you actually look at the testing models and the revenue models, it is a fairly linear 45 degree up and to the right uh, line, which is great. But if you tell somebody early on that like the best you're going to do for them is you're going to help them see a 3% left in the next six months, not exciting at all. So like really buying into the long game instead of the short game is a very important founding principle for us. How much of these principles, how much of this, this methodology is in response to the recession that almost created this agency? Because it seems like before the recession, during the boom, when things were great, when there's money flowing around, a lot of these things didn't matter. Like money, clients were kind of just willing to throw a bunch of money. Like you were saying, you could, they could spend millions on a concert uh, event, a big event. You could, and you could give them the pictures, a video, whatever, without really giving any data on the ROI. But now it seems like there's more of it. So how much is this, in response to that and kind of what you've developed out of that? Sure. So good question. A fairly significant amount, and it actually comes down to kind of three drivers. One is the desire for higher levels of accountability. And some of that does come from lower budgets or at least constrained budgets. Um, a lot of it actually comes from the fact that CEOs are now caring more about what's happening with marketing. It's a great um, study by the Fournays group, if I remember their name correctly, it's either Fournay's group or the Fournay's Institute, that um, they went out and they surveyed 1,200 CEOs um, from mid-market and enterprise companies across the United States. And it turned out that one of the stats is 78% of CEOs believe that marketers are not spending enough time investing in P&L quantifiable impact. That scares the crap out of me. If eight out of 10 CEOs really don't know what marketers are spending money on, they're going to pull the budgets, 
And that's exactly what's happening. The less accountability there is, the more pressure there is on marketing, and the less freedom that marketing has. So there, some of that is a response to the uh, change in marketing conditions. Some of it's actually just a response to the change in the relationship between um, CEOs and CFOs and marketing departments in general. Um, the third piece is, is that there's been a proliferation of technology over the course of the last 10 years or so that has actually made this a lot easier to manage. So, you know, if you go back to 2000, when, you know, I started my first uh, marketing agency, um, we just didn't have the tools in place to do this as easily uh, or as well as we do now. So the technology is caught up to the thinking a little bit at the same time as the market conditions have changed. Okay. So it's almost like before, it wasn't that people were unaware of the importance of ROI, but it was just there's no real way to do it. So you almost had to have the more qualitative assessments of things like, oh, was this, did this seem like a well thought out effort? Did this reach whatever measurable things we had? But you didn't have the deep insights that you do now with the dozens of uh, analytics platforms that are out there. I, I'll qualify that a little bit. So, so there were many good ways to do it. They were just not as easy or as inexpensive. Um, the other piece, too, is, is that, quite frankly, it was not a priority for many marketing organizations and, unfortunately, is still not a priority for many marketing organizations. It will be. Every successful marketer, uh, like in-house brand marketer and agency in the world will be doing this in 15 to 20 years because it will be a requirement um, of, of success. If you can spend millions of dollars on a really cool concert, why wouldn't you? It's fun. It's exciting. It's creative. You know, it's a lot less sexy to say, I'm going to deal with a data quality project that's going to make me a couple of million dollars. I have a, my own unique background where I was a professional poker player for eight years. And you see it a lot in gambling where it's that rush. They want the big wins. They don't care about grinding it out day in, day out and making a living. They care about just going for the big score. And a lot of times people end up broke doing that. So I, I understand kind of the psychology of how people, if it's boring, if it's not exciting, they just don't care, even no matter how rational your argument may be. Oh, yeah. No, I have a lot of empathy for marketers in that position. Like, I absolutely get it. But, um, you know, I see us in the business of helping good people build great companies, not doing really interesting creative for creative sake. And that's kind of the difference between design and art. You know, art can exist for art's sake. Design has a purpose. I feel the same way about marketing and advertising. You know, marketing and advertising exist for a purpose. It's to support the growth of a business. How do you do that? By impacting P&L. Everything else is just a hobby. I'm going to stop Jake right there for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, he's going to share how he actually applies these principles in his own agency. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was in your last project, then you'd need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try 
www.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code ADVANTAGE. That's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code ADVANTAGE. All right, let's get back to Jake. What I'm curious about now, though, is is you talk about this methodology. You talk about you lean very heavily on Steve Blanks and on, on this sort of startup lean methodology and everything that's come out of the startup world. How do you actually apply this to your clients? Like, what do you do differently than other agencies that let you identify the right problems, that let you learn when you're wrong faster? How do you actually apply this? Sure. So, you know, we have some methodologies in place around discovery, both with regard to like internal stakeholders and customers. Uh, some of it is quantitative driven. So there's some you know, data science kind of stuff that our team does and uh, marketing analysis work or marketing analytics work, excuse me. There's also just a lot of pure play consulting where we sit down and we work with our clients to understand their business problems rather than their marketing problems because marketing is a tool set that we use and apply to solving business problems, but ultimately they're business problems, right? Like a, a if you're not making enough money to keep the lights on, that's a business problem. Marketing is a potential solution, so is sales, so is going out of business. We, we look at it first and foremost from a business consulting standpoint. Once you get beyond that, and I mean this with all due respect to marketers in general, there are a lot of really good marketers out there. There are a lot of people that can execute really well. And what makes us different isn't so much that you know our team is orders of magnitude better at what they do than some of our competitors, although I would argue we are better. And we have our orders of magnitude better than some. Um, but once you get over a certain bar, most of us are pretty good. Um, but it goes back to the core methodology, how we learn what works and what doesn't work. And a lot of that is driven by um, things like split testing, multivariate testing, and continual uh, consumer research. So we can understand, are we getting the kinds of behaviors that we really want out of these audiences? And if not, that we can identify discreetly why, so that way we can adapt and continue to run um, you know, do interesting tests. So it's kind of the difference between waterfall development and agile. You're not going to place these huge bets without first feeling the waters, without getting some knowledge and some feedback. Yeah, so a good example of that is we have a client that when we started working with them, I believe if I remember correctly, our first assignment was a $4,000 consulting gig, and now we spend $3 million a year for them. Uh, and it's us applying our incremental approach. It's not that we couldn't have gotten a larger budget. It's just that we did not know more than three, four months in advance what we thought was going to happen. So we're constantly learning. We're constantly building uh, discrete hypotheses that we believe are testable. And we're always testing them, both at the strategic level and the tactical level. And as we gather more evidence that something's working, then, of course, we'll invest in scale. But if we can't gather evidence with enough uh, statistical significance, so in, in other words, that we believe that it is, will be true at scale, then we will not scale it. So we're constantly playing this game of tug and war between where do we want to place resources because, quite frankly, there's no lack of ways to spend time or money on marketing and advertising. It's about placing the right bets. It helped when you started out. You started as a consultant. So you started by thinking about these bigger business problems and advise them on how to solve them. Whereas for a lot of agencies out there, that's not their background. Their background is they were the ones that someone would come to them and say, build us a website. They'd build a website. How would you give advice to those types of agencies who don't really have the processes in place to do a discovery on finding out what the business pro problem actually is? 
Sure. So to be very clear, there's nothing inherently wrong in having a brand come to you and say, build me a beautiful website and build them a beautiful website. Um, however, you can drive a nail into a wall with a screwdriver or a hammer. A hammer is just easier. So if the website is not actually what they need in order to achieve their, to solve their business problem, then they will never be happy with your website, regardless of how pretty it is. So you, you immediately have a disconnect in, in expectations. So if you do not want to take a strategic position in terms of offering recommendations for what to do, you know, for instance, don't do a website, do a mobile app, which again, I think is totally fine not to take that strategic position, make sure that you have clarity on those expectations around why. So it starts with why are you doing this? What is driving that decision? And now let's talk about how do you want it done? And, and from an agency perspective, at the worst, when they come back and they say, well, this isn't working, you can say, well, we talked to you about why you wanted to do this. And we talked to you about what you wanted to achieve. Does we believe that this does this? And it allows the conversation around expectations management to be much more even. Because at the end of the day, a lot of it does come down to setting expectations, setting them out front, and then actually finding a way to objectively measure them and say like, hey, this is what we need to do. Here's how we're going to measure it. And at the end, did we do that or not? Yep. Yep. I, there, you know, there's a formula to measure happiness. Have you ever heard this? No. So happiness equals uh, reality minus expectations. So if your expectations are three and reality is one, you have a minus two, and therefore that person is unhappy. So you better know what the expectations are and whether or not you can exceed those expectations in order to create customer happiness. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in that loop, which many, many agencies do, which is they're just running, putting out fires all the time. Um, and oftentimes that's because their clients are trying to solve problems they really don't understand. So you know, if you want to be that agency that has a really great website, or designs a really great print ad and you see yourself primarily as a design shop or a programming shop, that's okay. Just understand the business that you're actually in. If you don't even know the real goal of the project, it's very, very hard to be successful. You're just guessing. Yep. yep. And you know what? Sometimes you'll get lucky right. and I'll love it and great. But when you're not lucky and they say they're really unhappy, who's going to get blamed? It's going to be the agency. And you do not have any evidence to fall back on to defend your position. So it's not, it's not about creating like an adversarial relationship with your client. It's about creating clarity. And, and that's actually a service to the client. You're, you're helping them think through their motivations. And sometimes in doing that, you talk them out of doing the thing that you want to do or that they want to do um, and then do something better. So, you know, I, I don't think that agencies have to take a business strategy solution approach to client management. I think that integrated agencies like ourselves have to. Um, but, but I think that there are many good design shops um, or um, you know, digital shops that they really don't have to, but they do have to realize that there are motivations and strategies behind what they do that are driving their activation. And if they want to keep a client over the long term, they have to understand those motivators the same way that you know, brands need to understand their customer, their customers' motivations and desires. I think that's a great way to put it because you're right. There isn't one only only one type of good agency. You can be strategy, you can do implementation, you can do whatever side of it you want. But wherever you are, getting the clarity in expectations, getting all that uh, work put in up front, so you know actually what needs to be done, is something that all good agencies must do. 
Yes, and that is the core of the account management. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, and there's actually, uh, I'm sorry, there's actually a really great book if uh, any of your listeners are interested in this. It has kind of a funny title. It's called Getting Naked uh, by Patrick, uh, I think it's pronounced Lecchioni. Um, and it's a very short book kind of written as a parable uh, that talks about client management. Now, it talks about it from a consulting standpoint, but I actually think uh, many of the principles that they touch on are core to any good account management team. I'll definitely get that linked up in the show notes. I would love to just talk and really go deep into the account management side of it because that alone is one of the biggest parts that's set, set apart the agencies that are doing really well and the agencies that are struggling to get by. But I, we don't have enough time to do that right now, so I'll get that in the show notes. But with that said, though, when a client comes to you now, when you are doing so much discovery, so much upfront, figuring out what the business problem is, what does it look like? Because they're not coming to you. A big brand or whoever isn't coming to you and saying, we need a new website, or are they? Like, How does a new client relationship work with your agency? Almost all the time. Clients come to us with a perception of the solution that they want. So they'll say, we want a new advertising campaign. We want a new website. We want a new billboard. Um, we want a new brand. Uh, and they haven't fully thought through why. You know, it's, it's the, the why, the what, and the how again. Um, so almost all the time, we make the assumption that whatever somebody comes to us with, is probably not what they actually need to be doing. Now, it's a, it's a healthy uh, skepticism, a you know, point of view of skepticism, and you know, I'd say maybe half the time that's actually true. But the way that we approach those engagements is we make the assumption that they are incorrect because it leads us down a path of asking exploratory questions. So very rarely do we end up, you know, somebody comes to the table and says, you know, I want to spend $50,000 in advertising campaign on Facebook. And we say, okay, let's go. It's all those questions about what are you trying to achieve, who your audience is, what do you, data or information do you already have that we can leverage in order to be more successful. So it starts with what we call a, a uh, audit and action planning process. So, and it, really what it is is discovery, analysis, and consulting. We then build an uh, implementation program that is almost always short-term oriented because we, especially for new clients, we do not believe that we can see into the future, well, period, but we can't model into the future more than three, maybe four months. So once you get past a quarter, it is really, really hard for us to say, we think this is going to continue to happen or will not happen. So what we actually do is run short sprints on programs. Now, we don't always sell it in that way. We sell it in as an integrated program, and we're going to come to the ideas with table, come to the table with new ideas. But truthfully, what we're doing is sprints. You know, we're saying, well, let's do these discrete things, see what works, see what doesn't, layer on new creative, layer on new messaging, scale what works, stop what doesn't, and pivot into other areas. Uh, what that actually does is that it allows us to start with much smaller budgets up front, which is a little counterintuitive from an agency perspective, but um, it makes it easier to close deals because there's less risk. Um, and also, over time, we tend to capture larger budgets because it allows us to have more evidence to say, if you give us budget A, we can deliver to you outcome B. And I mean, I, th- I think it's just all around a, a really smart way of thinking about it and of doing it. Because like you said, right, when you start off small, it's an easier sell, but it lets you build not only just a track record with them, but also a relationship with a client so that they see how you work. 
they can see the results, but they, they trust you. There, there's more of a, it's a deeper relationship so that when you do say, when you go back and say, hey, we could triple this budget, we could do whatever, we could, we could change in these directions, they're going to be much more apt to be on board with it. Yes, it is about trusting and credibility and transparency, and, you know, again, three of our core values. Uh, but it is also about not putting our foot in our mouth, right? So, like, I'm thinking of one client, um, when they first came to us, they had about a million, million and a half dollar budget that they wanted to deploy, and we actually told them no. Uh, we told them to stay with their current agency because we wanted to go through the discovery process. Only about a year later did we say, okay, now give us the budget <laughs> because we couldn't, we couldn't have done a good job with it up front. So it, it takes discipline as a business to say there will be a time when we want to do that and we will be well prepared and we'll be very successful when we do, but now is not that time. Um, and it, it, it's hard to do. As a business owner, it's hard to do, but I, I do think it's, it's the right thing to do. Well, yeah, there's two things. There's one is it goes back to the, the happiness equation is that by doing that, by, by taking it slow, you're able to actually make sure that once you do set the expectations, you're easily able to meet and exceed them. Because if you do it way too early, you're gambling again. It's just it's, it's luck. But the other thing that I, I want to touch on is that you're not – these aren't unicorn clients that are coming to you and, and saying – we we want to make more money. Tell us how to do this. We trust you. Do whatever you want. They're coming to you just like any other client where they think they already know the solution. What's different, though, is the work you do in your sales process and everything that leads up to the actual proposal and the work is that – I think a lot of it goes back to the challenger sales model you, you talked about is that you push back and you make sure that that's actually what's needed. So it's not that the clients themselves are different but that your methodology – gets different results. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the higher compliments that we receive from prospects is that we ask questions that they haven't heard from other people. And and there have been times, quite frankly, where I've gone to a pitch meeting, we've been there for an hour, we've asked six questions, allowed the prospect to talk for an hour, they think it's the greatest meeting they've ever had, and they'll, they'll say, well, when are you going to pitch us? And our job is to say, we're not going to. Our job is to discover and, and it's, it's that kind of process that I find gets the right kinds of clients really excited. Also frustrates the hell out of some people. What they want to see is the dog and pony show, the shiny object, and like there, there's a place for that, but our approach doesn't start there. So you know, I'll be the first to admit that we're not right for every brand, um, but I think that for the right kinds of brands, and, and these are oftentimes mid-market, growth-oriented companies, they're trying to figure out how to cross the chasm. Right, it's kind of the the analogy. You know, they know how to make money on the low end of the growth curve. They think they can make money on the high end of the growth curve, and they're scared they're going to lose a lot of money in the middle because they probably will. Our job is to help them get over that hurdle so they can really grow a hockey stick. What would you define as a mid market growth company? Like, what size? What sort of growth? Where are they at? Sure. No, it, it's a good uh, question, and we've had some pretty healthy debates internally about that because my personal point of view is that it has less to do with size and more to do with stage of the business. Uh, but I will answer your question directly. So the what I mean by stage of business is these are companies that have a successful business model. They, they know how to acquire at least a sub-segment of their total addressable market, and they're making money. You know, oftentimes, these are organizations that have a good sales team, um, a good marketing team. 
uh, you know, maybe the marketing team is really focused in one area. You know, maybe they're really great at content or really great at email marketing, not running fully integrated programs. Um, or maybe they're oriented more towards sales support and the sales team is really driving a lot of revenue. But that's only going to get you up to a certain level. You know, when you look to say, how can I scale and how can I make it predictive so I can constrain my you know, cost per sales qualified lead or, you know, my cost per transaction. And what does that mean in terms of my average uh, lifetime value for a customer? They, they, the smart leaders in these organizations understand the kinds of questions, but they don't really understand the operational methodologies that need to be placed in order to get there. So th- those, those are the unicorns for us, people that are asking those kinds of questions, um, but don't have the internal expertise or in order to do it well. Now, we've seen organizations that are you know, a couple million, maybe five, six million dollars a year in revenue that are there. We've seen clients that you know, are 700, 800 million, a billion dollars before they're there. Because you can get quite big with a good sales team and a really underdeveloped marketing department. But at some point, you need that higher level of sophistication to, to really get to the next level. Oh, no, that was a great answer because I think you're right. Is that You could have just given me numbers, but it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. That's goes back to everything you've been talking about today is that you can't really look at it just at face value. You need to dig deep and get into the meat of whatever it is that you're focused on, whether it's a problem, whether it's anything. And so I appreciate that. But what I want to transition into before we wrap up is I know you're part of uh, the entrepreneurs organization, EO. Can you just describe to listeners what that is and how that has helped give you? Because you have an amazing breadth and depth of knowledge in not just in the agency world, but in business in general. So I'm curious how you've been able to develop that. Sure. So I mean, Entrepreneur's Organization has been a fantastic experience in, in full transparency. I'm, I'm on the regional board for the Raleigh-Durham area, so um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a, a believer. EO is an international organization of entrepreneurs that have at least a million dollars in revenue uh, per year or uh, $2 million or more in um, investment. Um, that puts us, uh, any member, in the 2% of businesses in, in the world that actually get to that scale. Um, and the entire concept is built around non-judgmental experience sharing. So it's not a leads group. Um, and it really focuses on the three aspects of everybody's life, personal, family, and business. Um, and it is, in my experience, a bunch of smart people sitting around talking about how they experience certain challenges and opportunities. If you ask my wife, it's uh, entrepreneurial therapy. But <laughs> either way, I think it's a great experience. Um, and, you know, we, there's... Um, you know, hundreds of chapters worldwide. I've been to some of the global events. Um, they've been really great. Um, but the core aspect of EO is a once per month meeting, what's called a forum, where you have a smaller group. It's usually about seven or eight business owners because you, you have to be a business owner or principal in order to um, be an EO. And uh, you get together and you go through uh, the forum experience. And in and, and EO, they call it the gestalt sharing experience, but it's essentially not non-judgmental sharing, where you talk about uh, the best and worst things that happened you know, in the last month uh, on personal level, family, and business. Um, there's usually a presentation. So one person presents on a deeper issue that they want to hear how other people have dealt with it or um, have experienced it. And again, it is never, this is what you should do, Jake. It's always, well, you know, 
when I've run into a similar situation, this is what happened to me. Or um, I haven't gone through this similar situation, so I can't really speak to it, and which is perfectly fine as well. I have found that you develop some really strong relationships with excellent, excellent leaders. Um, and it's been very helpful for me in not just understanding that, A, no matter what the size of the company is, most of us are dealing with the similar shades of the same problem. I mean, I have had people that I've been informed with that have hundreds of employees that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they're basically dealing with the same problem as you know, my little company. But you know, also it's that I get a lot of good learnings from leaders that have excellent experiences. Um, and it's really helped shape my thinking about how to run my business and you know how to bring good people into the organization and turn them into leaders. Wow, because I think it's something when I talk to more and more successful agency owners, one thing I see in common is what can really boil down to just the drive to always learn more, whatever that might be through books, it might be through any other form. But what seems to be the most impactful has been some form of masterminds or an organization like this where you have people in similar positions as you that can give that non-judgmental feedback because reading a book is one thing that that gives you tons of ideas but you don't you don't have a feedback loop it's really hard to learn if you're actually doing it right whereas when you have a group of people who can talk back to you and and see your results and give you that feedback that loop that feedback loop is really what makes it stand apart from other ways of of learning and improving Yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. There's a lot of nuance in those conversations, and it's the follow-up questions. You know, like, well, why did you do that when you face that situation? The other thing, too, just pragmatically, is, is that sometimes it's just really helpful to be plugged into that network. So a couple of years ago, when you know we wanted to shift our health insurance and benefits program for our employees, I went to you know my EO friends and said, who are you using? Right. Like what, what's the practical experience that you've had here? And I've actually got turned on to a lot of great folks, one of which we're actually now using. So like another core principle of EO is, is that, that we can't sell to each other and it takes a lot of the pressure and kind of odd conversations away. And that's not to say that like there aren't people in EO that do business with one another, but there's some pretty strict rules around it. Um, but I do think that the, the practical network effects of those kinds of groups, whether it's EO or some um, uh, you know, masterminds or whatever is to me at least almost as valuable as listening to all the experiences. You're right. It's a practical stuff where sometimes it's not this deep theoretical question about the philosophies of your business, the, the fundamentals, anything like that. It's just you need an answer on the best way to do X, and there is an actual answer for that. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, oh, you should do blank, because that person probably doesn't know what I should do, but they can say, this is how I do it. You know, I've heard conversations where, you know, I'm interested in giving equity to some of my key employees. How do you have it structured in your organizations? And it's not that one approach is right or wrong or better than another, but it's just additional information to inform, you know, myself as a leader to make better decisions. Right. And it seems like it all circles back to what Carl said about you being one of the top upper echelon of December decision makers. And I think it, what a lot of it does come back to is just having more and better informed things to choose from, like knowing what the real options are so that you, you just have, can make a more informed decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hard part is there's a lot of information out there and it is very easy to get into the paradox of choice. So having some framework to kind of sift through all that is helpful. Um, but I am a huge believer that the more information you have, 
the more feedback that you have and the faster the iteration on that, um, the better position smart leaders and managers will be in to make better decisions. Oh, that's perfect. And I want to ask two quick questions before you wrap up. So, Jake, what do you think right now? What do you spend too much time doing? That's a great question. Um, so personally, I probably spend too much time on HR, uh, but that has to do with the fact that we need a new HR manager. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, I, I love dealing with my team, but there's just some paperwork things that I, I need to get off my plate. What do you think you don't spend enough time on? Like if you were able to remove that from your plate, where do you put that time to have either the most leverage or just maybe even just not in the business at all? Yeah, I, I think that all CEOs need as much quiet, unstructured time as possible. Um, and that's hard to do when you're the leader of an organization because very rightfully so, a lot of people need your input. Uh, but the most successful leaders that I know are ones that delegate pretty much everything so they can take a step back and look at what's actually happening and have quiet time to reflect. Um, it's a little counterintuitive when you see you know, the kind of beehive-ness of some businesses and the CEO sitting there quietly. But that's actually what, what I, I, I would love to spend more time on is just stopping and reflecting because I think perspective um, is extraordinarily helpful in, in making good decisions. So, Jake, before we say goodbye, if people want to hear more about what you're up to, about EO, anything like that, where should they go to check all that out? Sure. So uh, you can visit our website, which is uh, methodsavvy.com. That's M-E-T-H-O-D-S-A-V-V-Y.com. Or uh, feel free to shoot me an email directly. I'm just Jake, J-A-K-E, at methodsavvy.com. Perfect. And then if they do want to see if there's like an EO organization near them, what's the website for that? Sure. So um, the the best resource to go to is eonetwork.org. All right. Perfect. So, Jake, what I'll do is I'll make sure I get all that linked up in the show notes so that listeners and readers can check all that out. Thanks so much for taking the time and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. It was great hearing Jake break down the mindset he uses to approach his business. And I think he hit the nail on the head when he said business owners spend an enormous amount of time and resources solving the wrong problems. Whether they're distracted by shiny object syndrome or the fear of missing out on the latest trend, many business owners lose sight of the fact that their ultimate goal is to make investments of time and money that drive measurable business outcomes. The challenge is understanding what outcomes actually matter, especially when those outcomes aren't achieved by exciting or sexy tactics. For Jake, if he can't get his clients to buy into that mindset, then he simply won't work with them, even if that means turning down $600,000 because he knows he's not going to be able to give them the quick fix that they want. To help cultivate this mindset, Jake relies heavily on entrepreneurs' organization because it gives him a sounding board in an honest but non-judgmental forum. Having a group of like-minded people to bounce ideas off of and push you when you need it is what many people, especially on the show, have attributed their success to. So whether it's EO or your own mastermind, I strongly encourage you to seek out a similar group for yourself. All right, that's all I have for you this week. If you got something out of this, though, I'd love it if you could share that tip in a review for the show on iTunes. I love hearing from listeners, and it only takes a few seconds to leave a review. So if you could do that, I would really appreciate it. Next week, I'll be back with Sarah Bacon, who shares my disdain for RFPs and lays out her system for getting paid to pitch. Talk to you then. See ya. See ya.